attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia. It will not hold you back. Dyslexia. It's kind of useful. Anything is dyslexia. Dyslexia. My name's Elizabeth Ariffian. My name is Charlotte Edmonds. And you're listening to Move Beyond Words. In this podcast, we're going to amplify the voices of neurodiverse people and unravel living with the complex and multi-layered label of dyslexia. In this episode, we got the opportunity to speak with the creative human that is Steve Chapman. Steve is an artist, writer, podcaster, and speaker interested in creativity and the human condition. Steve specialises in conceptual art projects designed to provide a counterpoint to what society regards as normal. He's also created Sound of Silence, the world's first silent podcast featuring special guests which include Elizabeth and I. We invited Steve on our podcast to delve deep into the creative mind and find the connection between art and dyslexia. Hi, Steve. Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right. Lovely to see you both. Just to give the listeners a little background, you and I met at Kay Scorer's Shitty Kitchen in summer 2018. That was it. I rocked up with a bottle of wine and was ready for fun and games. I'd read the invitation a little wrong. (laughs) The evening was spent sharing what was shitty in our lives. It was an evening of digging deep and on reflection was very much needed. I was touched by your honesty that evening and I instantly felt a connection with you and the way you express yourself. I'm so thankful to Kay for so many reasons, but meeting you was absolutely one of them, Steve. We've worked together as well as facilitators where we were hired to disrupt conventional methods of discussion. My group of mainly business-minded people ended up sharing their findings from the weekend in an improv dance. And Steve ended up in a tent in the centre of the room with I don't know tent written above where people could come in for consultations on not knowing. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. You've got this fantastic quality and value of staying true to your artistic expression and expressing the value of outsider art and claiming your unique abilities across various disciplines as an artist and not to pigeonhole yourself and your abilities. I'm so excited to have you with us and on Move Beyond Words podcast. I know you like not knowing and you don't like giving answers. (laughs) So this should be fun for our very structured podcast full of questions that need answers. Lovely. That's such a lovely intro. um, I'm touched by that. It's worth coming on just for that. And I don't mind answers as long as answers that lead to new questions. Well, we can do that. We can definitely do that. As as this episode is focusing on creativity in the world of dyslexia, and you are an artist and creator, I think it's great to start with painting a picture for the listeners of the space you're in right now. At the start of the COVID stuff, I renamed this the Art Bunker, because um, it's basically, it's where my garden shed used to be. Um, and for ages... I just thought oh, it'd be brilliant just to have a space where I can make stuff. I take great offence if people call it a man cave because my understanding of a man cave is just full of tap. <laughs> this is a working art studio. Um, and it's, I've had it for about three years and I can almost touch the walls. I mean, I've got ridiculously long gorilla arms anyway. <laughs> but in here, I have literally everything. I have pens, I have pastels, I have paints in the corner. I have a scroll saw that I can cut up bits of wood. You can't see, but there's spray paints and books and just random stuff like old dolls' heads and uh, an Elvis with uh, baby arms that I made out of toilet roll. Um, let me let me show you. You won't be able to see it if you're on the podcast, but it's just random stuff. Oh, that's oh, wow. brilliant! Can you try and explain that, Steve? For yeah, listeners? this was um, again. I started at the start of. Um, lockdown I was spending more and more time down here and remember at that time when toilet roll became like a valuable thing I started yes. decorating toilet rolls and someone said could you um do a celebrity toilet roll for us and so I made this it's basically a toilet roll that with Elvis so um, I also stuck baby arms on because I had some baby arms <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> but it's just 
to have a space like this, um, I don't know how I coped about it before because I, I like messiness. I mean, I like stuff ordered. I can put my hand on anything in here that you say, like, where's the orange neon spray paint? I know exactly where that is. But there's something about having the house as my base that meant that anything that was messy, I was always worrying about having to tidy it up afterwards. Um, particularly stuff that you couldn't finish in a day. Like mask making takes about three days. So, yeah, this is my space. And I like having every corner of it decorated with things. Um, I, on a number of Zoom calls, people have said, oh, the, to, for a professional Zoom call, you should have a very blank background, which is fair enough. But I think um, I want people to get distracted by the background. I want people to forget that they're talking to me and go, what an earth's that thing? Or like, some of the weird paintings, like this painting here of just this this strange girl. That I did. She's quite freaky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that's my space, and it's where I've, I spend, now not running workshops and things, spending virtually all of my time in here. So to kick things off, can you talk to us about how dyslexia has played into your project, Steve? The short answer is I don't know, but it can't not, I think. But I always struggled with certain things at school. And it's weird, I thought, well, I can write. I've written a, a couple of books. So I can't be dyslexic because I can write um, and I can read. But reading's difficult. It's always been boring and hard work. Um, but it was when my daughter was, was diagnosed and we had a test done for her and I found out about things like working memory and pattern recognition and memory retention and certain other things that I thought, oh, wow. And I think it is that superpower of dyslexia to be able to see patterns and make connections that just means I'm always open or susceptible to ideas. Like I might see something out the window and then see something in here and immediately there's an idea there. Um, or I'll just start making a mark on a piece of paper and then just see where it ends up without having any intention. And the most liberating thing I found was giving myself permission to not have to explain my workings because I don't, I don't know what they are. And that used to be the worst thing at school is I'd instinctively know something. It doesn't mean it's right, but I'd know. But I wouldn't have words for it. Um, or I wouldn't be able to explain my workings. I think that's how it, that's how it influences it. Um, just in that way that I perceive the world. In your Dancing With My Inner Critic TED Talk, you mentioned that at school you were told that you wouldn't achieve anything because you didn't try hard enough which is yeah. a, a really difficult thing to hear when you feel you are trying hard yeah. um can you talk to us about this experience and did you find school a challenge yeah i i mean my favorite bits of school were field trips and i did geography a level just so i could go up mountains and go in caves and like stand in rivers measuring the depth of the river i mean i wasn't interested in geography i just like doing that stuff um and i liked messing about with my mates but it's i think a it was boring um it's just taught in such a boring way and i think boredom i've written about this before boredom is important it's like when food smells off boredom is a sign that hold on this is this isn't good for you um but then also i, I still remember in exams and in maths, particularly in maths lessons, of physically feeling my brain on fire, um, like just across my forehead, and just that complete—it's uh, an anxiety response. And I understand. Just thinking, I don't know how to do this. I can't do it. Mm. Um, and it was—it was only when, when I started becoming in, interested in this idea of the inner critic and self-sabotage. Actually, I think it was a coincidence. I was at my parents' house, and I, <laughs> I love my parents, but my mum threw away all of my schoolwork, all of my old artworks. So I've no, no history of my childhood at all, apart from my school reports. And I dug them out, and I was having a read of them. And as I read them, it was just making me quite angry. So it's just every description was, won't achieve stuff unless he tries harder, or doesn't make little effort. Oh, and I'm, I'm thinking back, thinking I couldn't have made any more effort if I tried. 
And there was one that said, um, when, and they all called me Stephen, which nobody calls me Stephen. And they all spelled with a PH, which is wrong anyway. Um, when Stephen is interested, he produces reasonable work, but the rest of the time, he makes no effort. And I just thought, hold on, being interested is at least, it's only 50% my responsibility. It's like, <laughs> the lessons are just, and then, then I realized that really school was, at least my school, not all school, but my experience of school was, it was a memory test. Um, that you, it was a mem- not only a memory test, but you were thrown into this weird situation, sitting in a school gym, being asked to do this memory test on demand under these weird conditions that you're never, ever going to experience in your life unless you're maybe in prison. Yeah. And <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I just genuinely don't learn in that way. And so it just didn't work. I did. I, I managed to scrape some C's at GCSE. We were the second year of GCSE. Um, like I say, A-levels I only did because I wanted to go up mountains and I got a D in A-level law, A-level geography. But I also did A-level law, which was bizarre. Um, I really, I, I, I really don't know what I was doing at school to do all these things. But I thought law would be really exciting. I thought there'd be all these murder court cases and that. It is the most dull subject ever. The most exciting thing about two years of A-level law was when a budgie flew into the classroom. That's all I remember from A-level law. And I got a U. I got a U in A-level law, um, oh. which was the second highest grade out of our law class. Well, that says a lot about the school. Yeah. And so, I again, there's a combination of things, though, isn't there? None of my family went to university. My older cousin went on to train to become a teacher, but historically none of my family have ever been to university. Um, so there's not really a bar set there. There was no talk of university or anything like that. It was like my mum and dad left school with no qualifications. I think you could leave at 14 then, or maybe 15. And so the fact that I was staying on to do A-level geography and I got a couple of C's and D's and E's was like, I was doing brilliant. So there wasn't, there wasn't that expectation. And I think I've, I surprised myself that how naive I was and am. That I didn't even really know what university was. It's bizarre. It seems so weird to say that now. But I remember as my friends were filling in forms to go, I was thinking, What's, what? Why are you doing this? Haven't you had enough school? You, you've gone on to teach at um, unis and you've now got a master's, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I teach on a number of um, master's programs at business schools, um, which is a completely different, different thing. But I mean, for that whole early life, of, I left school, got a job in a factory, um, which, I, I mean, again, that's a family tradition. You go and you get a job and you work and then you earn more and more money and then you buy stuff. But I always had for years had this chip on my shoulder that I have no qualifications. And I particularly started getting known for working well with teams and working well with people. Um, I'd already sidelined this whole, whole, whole idea of creativity. When I, when I left, when I was at school, I wanted to work in radio, I wanted to write radio, present radio. Uh, I think I'd already given up on art by then. Um, but then uh, I left thinking, well, there's no chance of that. In fact, a career advisor told me that was a stupid idea. Um, but then in this work in the factory, people just started saying, well, you're working well with teams. Why don't we make you a manager of a team and supervisor of a team and all of those things? But every time, every promotion and responsibility came with that, oh, they're going to find out. They're going to find out that I, I'm a bit shit, really, that I have no qualifications. Mm. And it was only when, and I can tell the story of how I ended up doing the Masters at Ashridge, it was only when at Ashridge, suddenly I learned there is a totally different way of learning and being in the world. I, I was, my first assignment that I wrote at Ashridge, and again I got in because I knew someone who knew my work and just said, there's a professor that founded it, Professor Bill Critchley. And he just said, look, I know you work, are you, are you doing this or what? And he asked me three years in a row, and I kept saying, no, no. And he goes, I'm not going to ask you again. You're going to do it. And I said, okay. And he goes, that's your interview. You're in. So again, it was just through someone spotting something that I didn't believe him. But my first assignment at Ashridge was such waffly nonsense. It was written in this horrible academic tone of voice, like, so-and-so says this and this. And so I thought, that's how you write academically. Yeah. And I got the feedback that just said, this all sounds very intellectual, but we cannot see you in this. 
I don't know what you think and what you feel. You cannot, you will not succeed on this program if you continue to write in this way. Wow. Which immediately I was devastated. But then the brilliant thing that came from that was just to write from my own experience. Mm -hmm. And then I got brilliant marks for writing from my own experience. And it's, I got a distinction among the highest marks in my dissertation just from writing. I mean, it's grounded in academia. I mean, there's this theory and stuff like that. And it's just like, oh, bloody hell. If it was the opposite of school. And then that's where I've gone on to, to teach on programs like that. Is um, sort of really normally brought in to disconfirm the certainty that a lot of the students have from these programs. You just say, well, that's what you think. It's not real, though. And, and I love that. Yeah, I love that. Hearing you speak about your inner critic really resonates with me, especially jumping back to school. Because even now, I hesitate sometimes over sending a message or writing an email and I'm just so conscious that someone's going to send something back with like red pen all over it saying yeah, this is wrong yeah. this is wrong fail fail like do you know what I mean yeah and it just um presents so much anxiety and I can understand what you mean about trying to write in a way that you think you should but yeah. it doesn't sound anything like your voice no. you just think it's the right structure the right language to use and you try and teach yourself that way of working um, which is kind of completely against your kind of your own voice. And what was kind of my breakthrough moment was meeting Liz and finding some someone in my industry that I could relate to yeah. and we could chat about our experiences. And I just wondered if there was anyone in your life growing up that, you know, underst understood you or you someone that you could relate to. I felt a twinge of sadness as you asked that question, so I think the answer is no. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean there was there wasn't lots of people supporting and encouraging, but I've I've always thought I was weird. And as I got older, in a similar way to getting to understand dyslexia, I, I think there's certain autistic traits that I have as well. Um, I mean, I, I can read rooms, I work with groups and those types of things. But there's other things there that, that certain things that I find challenging. So I don't, I don't think I did. So did you think that you gained more self-awareness and control over your work when you became aware of your dyslexia? Um, I think in a combination of other things, definitely. Um, I think celebrating some of the superpowers of dyslexia, like, pattern recognition and things like that i asked my daughter my daughter's not around um, she just popped out um she's age 13 now so she just pops out i said i've this podcast <laughs> and i asked her a couple of questions oh, great. Um, to which i think is relevant to what you said here um i said to her what does dyslexia mean to you and how do you think dyslexia helps your art because she's an amazing artist and to what does dyslexia mean to you she said it means not having a normal brain but that's a good thing I think, I think I am. I relate to that. So I think thinking right. I don't think in the same way. I wouldn't use the word normal. I don't think and make sense of the world in the same way. Um, and maybe if in a certain line of work that would be a big disadvantage. It's certainly a disadvantage in the traditional, quite antiquated schooling system. And then the other thing is, how do you? As when I said, how do you think dyslexia helps your art? She said. Um, it helps by thinking of the ideas that no one else would think of. And I think it's that thing. It's just that colliding together of ideas of those, those freaky, weird things and just being comfortable to express them. So, yeah, it absolutely helps. And I, I think, again, I guess I hadn't thought of it, Charlotte, but maybe realising it was the same sort of mirror validation as getting the good marks at Ashridge. Mm. It was like, yes, you, you are neurodiverse in this way. Um, and it's not a disadvantage, it's just you are different. Because when my daughter was diagnosed, because we paid for a test, because she got to the point of not wanting to go to school anymore when she was like seven or eight. It was a terrible time. Because uh, as a parent, you, you've no idea what to do. You think, you're getting bullied, what's going on? And it was just, yeah. the work was just impossible. Um, and so we paid to have the initial assessment and then the, the bigger assessment. And I, I, at the time, remember, I didn't want to tell her. Uh, this is bizarre now. Or I didn't want, I suspected that the label 
would be unhelpful, that the label would make her think I'm thick and stupid, but it had the totally opposite effect. It liberated her. It's like, right, this makes sense. Now I get it. Now I know that I'm special in this way. And so I think it probably did for me as well. Yeah, I imagine that your experience, you know, having gone through your journey has been reflective to Maya. Yeah, definitely, because we've not made it a problem. Um, We don't make, I mean, we're recording this during this sort of in-between lockdown-y space. Um, It's been really difficult for her because all the schoolwork has been set via an app that you read and then you do, and it just doesn't work for her. Um, and at the same time, whether you like it or not, school and grades are important in the society we live in. So with her, we're trying to get a balance of saying, well, look, this is learning the language of the way that most of the world works, so it's important to do, but please don't destroy yourself trying to do it. Just try and do one bit of schoolwork a day and rip up and throw in the bin the bits that seem rubbish and pointless. Um, and so I think that that has helped. And the fact that, I mean, the, the space that I'm in, my daughter's bedroom looks very similar. And it's sort of, <laughs> so it's sort of just encouraging that, I think. Um, and not worrying that everything is only worth it if it turns into profit and money and job. It's important. But I wrote a blog um, earlier this year about doing stuff just for nice. Uh, for, for no other reason than just for nice. And I finished it off by saying, if we see the world purely in profit, survival and growth we miss the everyday magic that lies behind it and i think that's that's important maybe that's what neurodiverse people see that they're less distracted by the norms and easily able to see that magic i mean that's that's something you've definitely enhanced in me is is exactly that and um you invited me to the secret, super secret musical improv where everybody embraced that. And um, Heather and Joe created all these improvisational scenes, songs and musicals. And uh, you, you create a great game for each one. And I haven't laughed so hard since then, I don't think. Um, and it was just fantastic that everyone could unleash the ugly, the beautiful, and and just kind of let go of the ego for a moment and just enjoy what is. I was just going to say, it's really interesting to hear you articulate dyslexia, because when I've heard you speak before, I can't, I can't articulate it in the kind of uh, creative way that you do, but also it's relatable and I think if I didn't have dyslexia I'd be able to understand it and I think as artists we always like to try and illustrate things through our choreography our movement our our artwork and try and let the message speak through through that but like you said earlier you always have to support that with some kind of writing everyone always wants to know wait what's the piece about though and you always have to kind of support that and that's the hardest thing but that that question i think is if we reframe that what's it about what's it for as actually no that's a sign we're onto something that's a sign we're working beyond words rather than us being deficient that's where i think it's it's magical it doesn't mean we're wrong and for years if someone would say well what's this about what's it for i'd be thinking "I, i haven't got an answer so it must be shit I love the way you've said a world that is beyond words and yet here we're about to ask you to show and tell an item through words (laughs) on this podcast. But um, in the show, we'd like to ask our guest to bring in and show an item that represents AIDS or embraces dyslexia. Is there an item that you can share with us that you believe helps or represents dyslexia in your life? This entire room that I'm in is it. One of the things, uh, there's a couple of things that I've got here. Um, there's a whole sort of body of psychology that talks about our awareness arising from sensation, uh, body sensation and body intelligence, that then triggers movement, that then triggers emotions. And then the final thing, the cherry on the top, is we articulate it with words, which makes sense. It's the way our brains develop through those bits. Um, and for me, art, and this is where school destroys art by marking it and having a standard, art is simply a way of 
having a live experience of what what you're experiencing. And so what I tend to do is if I if I can't express myself or I'm thinking I don't know how I'm feeling right now is just to start making a mark. Um, but starting from that sensation without having to be anything. Um, and I was trying to think, I, I just felt a bit on edge or destabilized the last couple of days. And I thought, I don't, I have no idea why. So I just started this. Oh, wow. So you won't be able to see this, but I can send you a scan of it. This is just oil pastels. And it's just, the, the lovely thing about oil pastels are they're tactile. As you move them, you can feel the oil pastel crumbling. And so it was just starting to make marks on a piece of paper and letting them evolve and establish. And then colour can come into it if colour comes into it. Um, it doesn't need to mean anything. Mm, For me, yeah. that, that sort of was like, oh, I feel like I've expressed and I've understood something. I don't, if you ask the question, which I know you guys wouldn't, what's it about? What does it mean? I don't know. And then conversely, this was one from yesterday, which has words on it. So again, it was just to start with that tactile, sensual process of mark making as a way of expressing stuff that's beyond words. Um, and occasionally I'll come up with an idea and I think I'm going to do this piece of artwork and it will look like this and it will say this. And just for listeners, that last piece oh, had yes. um, a dog inside of a cage with the door open and it says, the gate is open, but the dog can't get out. That's really powerful, Steve. Thank you. Do you realise that? Um, and that's that's it for me. So it's a difficult show and tell because it's a process. Um, yeah. But it, it, I guess it may be in a similar way to you. You guys may be able to sense something in yourself and move in a way that is tuning into it or amplifying it or developing it. Um, and for me, it's 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 making marks. It's emotional expression. Um, if anyone likes it, it's an added bonus. Even things like the the, the projects, like the Sound of Silence project, I've, it's taken me three years to realise actually, it's because I really crave silence. Um, I didn't realise it at the start. All of the work is just here's some artful ways of expressing myself, and if people like it, it's a bonus. You having spent twenty years as a global director, and I'm going to try and get this title right. Oh, geez, I can't remember. Global Director of Leadership and Organization Development and Culture for a <sighs> pharmaceuticals company. I feel like I need a round of applause for that, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks, thanks, thanks. I mean, having spent 20 years, is that right? 20 years? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, you know, Gosh. not being able to, to share yourself authentically, and maybe I'm just creating this um scenario but you know did you feel like you had any any self-expression there and that your your ability to be an artist was ever seen in that space um my good friend nick parker um said to me a few years ago all of your work is art steve which is really helpful so i think of everything as being part of it. if art is just a live expression of self then so I, I didn't I wouldn't draw stuff and make things and that type of art when I was in in the corporate world but I think it used to leak out that I'd end up doing stuff in a slightly subversive countercultural way which is brilliant if you're interested in in change and I was quite happy to swim against the tide and things like that but incredibly stifled and limited which was I own at least 50% of that um, just because that's not the way that things work. It's like to even, I, I used to say things like, well, yeah, a, pl a plan's just a serving suggestion. It's not real. <laughs> Why you spend all, your, all the money on plans? Do have a rough plan and then actually see what's really happening. Um, and I never really, I couldn't imagine myself a in a, corporate and working in the corporate environment now now I, i'll go into companies and work with them but i couldn't imagine being part of it um and i also couldn't imagine working for someone I, I i don't know how i managed to do that for so long just the idea of having a boss that tells you what to do and i always used to end up with bosses that i didn't have that relationship with that would just give me freedom within there but 
I had no desire to ever work in the corporate world or in the pharmaceutical industry. It was just that it's just where I, the, the factory that happened to have part-time temp jobs packing boxes 20 years earlier happened to be in that industry. Um, and so it was only really with, with Ashridge and various other things that I did at that time. I thought, what am I doing? I don't really, I don't think I really like this. Um, but it was, I've said, I've said on occasions before, um, it was self-doubt that kept me in that job for so long. Self-doubt is a brilliant employee retention tool. Um, and it's only when that self-doubt started to crumble a little bit that I thought, actually, I need to leave. But then at every step of that, leave it, I went part-time initially, was going part-time and immediately this crushing and the critic attacks and what are you doing now? Now you're getting too cocky. You're thinking, well, well now you've got, you've halved your salary and you've got a family and a mortgage. And then when I left full-time, it's like, what are you doing now? It's, like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Never ending. And then I left the uh, consultancy that I was with. And it's like, what are you, no, no. And I think my inner critic's given up on all of that now. It's, um, oh, that's great. It's refreshing. I wish yours would have a word with mine. Yeah, but yes. it, it does. It's, it's, I don't think it ever goes away, but it affects me in far more subtle ways now. Like there'll just be an underlying anxiety that I don't have words for. So I don't think it ever goes, but you're always in this, in this dance with that. Mm. Um, but I, I, yeah, I found it a liberating experience. And I'm careful to say that that's how I found it. So I'm not saying that anyone that works in a regular corporate job is bad. I think it's maintaining choice, isn't it? Is it? Is this really what I want to do? You're making my mind jump around so much, Steve. <laughs> Just so much. And um, Liz and I both got one of your prints. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is so good. And I think, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it's like 10-year plan. Um, do stuff. Do more stuff. Uh, and then oh, it might have another another jump. But then to the side, it's like, R.I.P.? Yeah. No, keep doing more stuff, you know, and like just on that continued yeah. cycle. And and I think that's exactly it, that um, I can so understand you where you're saying you have that sort of like, um, you're stopping yourself from maybe doing something or because of that inner critic is yeah. coming back out to say hello. And it's just kind of erasing that. And, and Liz and I always saying, you know, practice what you preach. And it's so, it's so hard to apply that to yourself sometimes. Yeah. Even though you're trying to articulate that through your work or through, you know, the way you're teaching or things like that. I just want to jump back slightly to support the listeners in understanding what we were talking about when we talk about the inner critic um, can you just explain that a little bit more and and what that is exactly? So, I mean, most people will relate to this idea of the inner critic or the inner gremlin or whatever you want to call it as that voice. And I don't literally, well, my experience is it isn't literally a voice. Um, I don't, that's weird. It's just, that's just blow my mind. I don't know where the voice exists. <laughs> but anyway, um, it'd be that voice that's just saying, well come on you're not as good as you think you are play safe don't do that everyone's going to think you're stupid you're ridiculous you're not good enough those people are better and it is that experience of if we're experiencing judgment or comparison of ourselves or others and that's the interesting bit then it's that, that domain of the inner critic which is uh, a psychological structure that Freud called the superego um, that's about as much as I know about Freud I'm good at having knowing little bits about lots of things that makes me sound far cleverer than I am um, but yes, yeah, that structure of the superego. And when we're, when we're babies, that is vitally important because if we don't have the love and attention um, that babies want to feel seen, safe and soothed, if we lose that, we're screwed from our primary carers, parents or other primary carers. And I learned a lot of this from my friend, Simon Kavitia, who's a, a psychotherapist. So this structure is there to instinctively make us want to smile at key carer, to get their attention, to not do anything wrong. Whereas it's like if key carer is suddenly sad, we immediately blame ourselves and do everything to try and get that affection back. And Simon will say that the structure remains, but the content changes. So when you're a baby, it is about survival, but then it becomes about 
self-expression. Then as a teenager, it comes about fitting in, then in the workplace. And that's what it is. It's that moment by moment, um, Simon Kovitsch calls it the itty bitty shitty committee of... <laughs> I want a t-shirt with that. That's so good. Yeah. Can you say that again? <laughs> the itty bitty shitty committee. And, and that's what it is. And that is, I think, what inhibits most free, spontaneous, creative expression, whatever way that it is. And most of it's laid down in early life before words, which I've conv- I can't tell you when that would have happened. My parents have always been supportive of weird stuff that I've done, but also with a dose of, but that's not how you're going to earn money in the world. But school, it's, that lays so many seeds of that. And suddenly your artwork's marked wrong. It's like, God, how can you, how can you mark art wrong? Um, how can you grade movement and that type of thing? And that's, that's what it is. And I became fascinated. I can't even remember when I started to become fascinated about, by it. Of, so, so what is, let's assume that the world is going to hate all of our ideas and get in our way. All I can do is get out of my own way and find a way of expressing them. Uh, but for me, there's, there's a lot of macho stuff written about, I like, destroy your inner critic and I uh, smash it and get rid of it. And I don't know, maybe that works for some people, but for me, I thought, no, that's psychological self-harm. It, it, the, heart of, it, the heart of this part of me that's a structure of me, its intentions are good, but it's just way off the mark. And as, as uh, a gestaltist, if someone that practices uh, gestalt psychology, um, I'm more interested in working with things as they are rather than trying to work with them as they aren't. So I just thought, what if I get to know it? What if I start to get to know my inner critic? Um, and learn to dance with it and get to know it and study it rather than do battle with it. And that I found that really helpful. So that's a long answer to your question of what's the inner critic, but that's my answer. It's a perfect answer. I think, I, you know, you talked about it in the TED Talk and um, it's just it just resonates so much uh, with with me and I'm sure the listeners too. So thanks for going in depth there. And um, and you did an anti TED talk. Yeah. Can you just explain that? Well, I, again, I think with my daughter saying her dyslexia is her brain works differently, coming up with ideas that others wouldn't. I think that's similar to where my projects, I call them, come from. So I'm always interested in what is the dominant. Is there something will grab my attention or annoy me or irritate me or fascinate me? And I'll be thinking, what is the opposite of that? And again, it's slightly hypocritical potentially because I haven't done a TED talk, but there is the whole tyranny of the TED talk of people peddling answers. And I really tried to make my TED talk not have any answers and leave people with more questions than they came in with, but helpful questions. Um, And I thought that we're addicted to expertise. We're addicted to life hacks. We're addicted to these silver bullets like, Here's three guaranteed ways that the most creative people are creative that they don't want you to know about. All that nonsense. So I thought, I wonder what the opposite of TED would be. What can I do as an experiment just to see, just to try and disrupt this addiction to, to knowledge? Um, and it always starts as a question like that. The same as making a mark on paper. Um, and then normally I'll be going for a run, which I can't do because I've now got bad knee cartilage, so I can't run anymore. Um, and I just follow that thread and it would unravel. And this initial question unraveled into, well, I'm going to do the opposite of Ted. Um, and one of my mantras is always leap, then look. So I didn't think it through. I just said, right, let's, I'm going to call it Inexpert, Inexpert 2018. And I made a logo out of the lino cup. I went on social media and said, I'm doing this on this date. And it's like, right, now I can't back out of it, really. I better work out what it is. And I put out an open call for speakers. Um, and to cut a long story short, in the end, it was a sold-out 100-seater London theatre in, um, yeah, what's it called? It's in City Lit, whatever, the John Lyons Theatre in City Lit. Um, it was all not-for-profit, because I think money screws up most things. Um, and I wanted it to be not-for-profit to be a pure experiment. And I think tickets were like 30 quid or something. Um, it might have been cheaper, I can't remember. But I recruited 16 speakers to give talks on subjects they were passionate about but had little or no expertise in. And I wanted it, I was inspired by, do you know if you see a kid do show and tell, you imagine a kid is in, really interested in dinosaurs and may know five facts about dinosaurs. 
but they stand at the front of the class and talk as if they're a paleontologist. Or they talk as if they're, and that, I find that magical. And the idea was, what if we did that with grown adults? And then again, it's just ideas spark from that. So I thought the whole thing has to be an expert. Um, and what was great is City Lit had never done anything like this before, so they didn't really know how to do an event like this. None of the speakers did. Um, we hailed an, an expert art exhibition in the foyer of all bits of art that City Lit students had gone wrong because they were doing stuff they'd never done before. And we had, like, one of my favourites was these back legs of a paper mache giraffe that fell apart. And we, we exhibited <laughs> that with a price tag of, like, 10 grand on it and stuff like that. And my friend Nick Parker played the trumpet because he'd only been learning to play the trumpet for six weeks and he did all the music. And it was, it was an afternoon, but it was one of the most magical afternoons ever it was it was incredible um indescribable and people said at the end i i cannot describe that it's just just an afternoon of being human together i like that idea of not um worrying about uh people's opinions like you said you just kind of create the work and if people like it great yeah. and and i think if you put too much pressure on that it does the opposite thing. Like if you say to yourself, I'm going to have a creative day today, I'm going to be really yeah. creative. You're not no, really going to be. That's what I can't do commissions. Um, people say, how oh, can you do a commission? I mean, I, I can, but I find them really difficult. I much prefer to say that I've got this stuff lying around. Do you want to buy any of it? For that reason, it's the pressure of it. But I still, I still get crippled by criticism. It's just that instinctive thing overrides. It is more powerful than it. So with The Sound of Silence, because I'm writing the book, which I'll never finish, about the project, so it's the silent podcast. The day that I announced it, someone I didn't know that had lots of followers on Twitter said, this is the most ridiculous, egotistical idea ever. Podcasts have finally jumped the shark. And instead of going, it's like, oh my God, no, it's a shit idea. I, I probably shouldn't do it. No, no, he's right. I shouldn't do it. And that still affects me. It's like my TED Talk. However many, it's like 120,000 views and likes and stuff. I still know there's 14 thumbs down. And I still believe that those 14 thumbs down are right. Um, so it doesn't go away, but I've found a way of it not being completely crippling, I think. And for our listeners, can you explain the concept behind the podcast? Again, it's, I make sense of my projects as I do them. I was... I went out for a run, and just before I went for a run, on Twitter, I saw someone had posted something about a Leadership Hacks podcast. And I'm not anti-podcast, I'm on a podcast right now. So, And I just thought, oh, not another one. Like, here's your 10 things that you need to know about leadership. Oh, God. And then as I'm running, um, again, there's something around the process of running, of losing yourself in nature. And I often joke that, my inner critic's not as fit as me, so it can't keep up. So I get free thinking when I'm running. And I just thought, what's it? What would the opposite? I'm fed up with podcast. These podcasts. What would the opposite of a podcast be? Would it be nothing? What if you were to download nothing? Yeah, that'd be good. People downloading an empty space. Wow, that's, I, oh, that makes my brain hurt. And what if it was a podcast that wasn't just downloading nothing, but there was a lot of effort to curate this nothing with some some guests? Yeah, and it it goes from there. And I got back from the run. And it's like my working title was Sound of Silence. And my working titles always end up being the final title. And I did a logo out of Sumi Inc. that you both held when we did the photo. And I announced it, I'm doing this. And then I work out the rest as I go along. Um, so it came from, and the, the brilliant thing about that, I always say, if you don't have an objective, it can go anywhere. Because you're not going to keep course correcting towards that objective. And I guess the loose intention was to have a podcast of 100 episodes. But it's been so much more than that. It's been an exploration of who I am, of silence, of noise, of existential philosophy, of laughing with people, of meeting people who are my heroes, of people coming on the podcast and sobbing. It's, it's just been amazing from that. But that's, that's where the biggest learning happens. I mean, Charlie and I are doing this podcast, Move Beyond Words, and we're sat here talking the whole way through. And, you know, we've been really coming up against ourselves and yeah. my inner critic has been going crazy in it. And I think I can speak for you there as well, Charlie, that, yes, you, you know, we've, yeah, we've really, really come up against it. But that's where the beauty lies, is when you can face that inner critic. And as you said, you dance. 
and yeah. that's growth and and that's what we need to keep doing to yeah. to grow i think it means podcasts like this one come across at least for me as far more human they're less about i'm less suspicious of podcasts that are like this because they're not trying to sell me something they're not trying to do there's no ulterior motive it's just human beings expressing what it means to be human yeah and we're, we're, that's that's exactly what this is uh, steve yeah. is is we're learning and and yeah. that's this is the beauty of this is is that we get a chance to speak with people that we admire and and we get to learn more about our dyslexia yeah so as we come to our closing question right. in a few words what advice would you give to your younger self regards to dyslexia um I think I'd say, yep, this is fine. <laughs> because I wouldn't want anything to be different. Um, there could be part of me that would go, well, don't listen to the career advisor and don't worry about school and go and do this and pursue this. But I'd, I wouldn't be the person I am, I am now. Not so that's good or bad, but it's, I think it was, it'd be something like, this is fine or this is enough. Some, something as simple as that um, yeah that's all, that's all that comes to mind and what advice would he give to you now I think he'd say um, oh don't tell anyone but I'm really weird which isn't advice but it's like oh great I'm glad you know that You've known that all along. You don't think in the same way. Because I don't think younger me would give advice because it'd be too self-conscious of it. It would probably say, um, it depends on what age. I can just imagine if I met myself age five and expecting some sage advice, they'd just say, do you want to piss about on a guitar or something like that? I love that. <laughs> I was always just a really, really naive kid. So yeah, I don't think that answers the question, but that would be that would be the exchange. This is such a heavy question, I feel. But what does dyslexia mean to you? Um, <clears throat> I think it's uh, maybe rather an overly concrete label used to put inconvenient people in that box. But think in a different way. It's, I mean, it's helpful. My daughter's found it helpful. So it's, it's, it's the thing, but it's not real. I mean, where's that, where's that boundary between dyslexic and not? It's not real. Um, so it's a lens. It's a lens of difference. I think it's. Um, I certainly come from it from a. It, I mean, I'm not dyslexic in ways that other people are. Where reading and writing various other things are a real challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it's just, it's diversity, isn't it? It's a form of a form of diversity, same as everything else. It's a unique thing. Um, I'm sure you get you get dyslexic black dyslexic blackbirds. It's just that there's a, everyone's on some sort of spectrum somewhere, but it's convenient for society to put a boundary around it. Um, but I, I think that what's lovely about the work that you're doing and this whole movement around having these conversations is it's it's a unique thing as well it's not just when i was at school um dyslexic kids were thick kids that can't read and write that were then put in that bottom e class that would never stand a chance because they wouldn't get the support they're already labeled as naughty and disruptive but i think it's a label that i would have said 10 years ago it's a label that's unhelpful but I think it depends on how you engage with it um, it's also a VIP pass to being creative I think I think yeah I, I, I completely agree and, and I just hope that listeners and and people with dyslexia can embrace and nurture their wonkiness and weirdness as you would put it a little bit more um 
because it's beautiful and it's who we are and it's it's authentic to us and you're such an example of the the power of that and and how how much you can learn from being your your true essence and your true um your true self so thank you so much steve for joining us and spending spending your time with us and educating us it's been it's been a real pleasure yes i second that thank you thank you I've, i've loved it i've no idea how long we've been talking for which is always a wonderful thing I really like the fact that he relates his inner critic, um, or or at least he's spoken about his inner critic a lot today. Um, And I didn't know if that had been brought on by his dyslexia. Um, Like to me, I feel a lot of my anxiety is around or has been initiated by my dyslexia. Even just being on this podcast and thinking, is should I ask this question? Hang on, is it relevant? Oh, maybe I shouldn't ask it. And then I sort of backtrack and I love his freedom, how he's just trying to sort of push that away and be like, ask the question, you know, like, like just say it. I can't quite articulate it in the kind so of- So dancing way. with your inner critic, doesn't he? Like- yeah just accept it accept that it's going to be there accept that it's going to keep pulling you up i think for me it's a a reminder um he's reminding me about the lightness that you can have in your art and it doesn't have to be so serious and heavy and to have answers and resolve and you know we do what we do because there's freedom there and when you start to define your work and you start to add those outside pressures it squashes it and I think I need to go back to that and um, and just remind myself why I do what I do and why that's important every every podcast we do I'm like I really needed that today (laughs) yeah definitely if you have any questions you want answered please send them to info at movebeyondwords.co.uk and please keep sharing how you move beyond words through our hashtag movebeyondwords. Until next time, we've been Charlotte Edmonds and Elizabeth Arifian. This has been Move Beyond Words. To support the show, please remember to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Art and Design by Alex Colhan. Digital and Social Media by Gabby Whitehill, MBW's Project Manager Hannah Gibbs, Podcast Producer Niall Kalini-Taylor, and Original Music Composed by Tom Parker. This series is funded by Arts Council England.